CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, well, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you new interviews, market analysis, and we're going to break down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. ETF assets are approaching the $5 trillion mark this year. That would be a big milestone. Today on the show, we'll talk about standout trends fueling those flows. We'll also hit on a new generation of tech ETFs, the SPAC craze. And values struggle to win out over growth, and it really is a struggle. Here's my conversation with Tom Lydon, CEO of ETF Trends, Andrew McCormand, the Managing Director of ETF Trading Solutions at Wallach Beth Capital, and Paul Delaquilla. He's the president of Defiance ETFs. Tom, I want to start with you. The NYSE reporting uh, ETF trends for the third quarter just continuing to move along here. We're approaching $5 trillion now in assets under management. I wonder, Tom, what sticks out to you with ETF trends? How are the flows looking? I, I, of course, this has been a big year for active, non-transparent funds trying to get in on the market. Anything stick out for you in the first nine or 10 months of the year? Yeah, Bob, it's it's been a great year for fixed income. Uh, you know, with low rates, lower for longer, you're seeing more investors, more advisors pushing into corporate uh, and high yield bond ETFs. That's been huge, $175 billion there. On the equity side, the message has been traditionally in the last 10 years, it's been the low cost beta strategies, but we've seen a huge shift to not only technology weighted indexes like the QQQs, that's brought in like $25 billion. Um, we've seen thematic strategies kind of go through the roof. And then when you mention active, active non-transparent, a lot of new company or companies have been around for a while in the mutual fund space are now getting into the ETF business. Companies like T. Rowe Price, American Century, that are putting their stake in the ground in an active way, and that, that's been great. But there have been some other active yeah. strategies like ARK Invest that two years ago was $2 billion. Now they're... $12 billion. So they're seeing the love as well. Yeah. And um, Andrew, besides um, these active non-transparent ETFs Tom was talking about, the thematic ETF continues to be spot, uh, to be hot, the thematic ETF space. Uh, I want your comment on last week's uh, launch by Invesco of, a, of the junior NASDAQ 100. Here's a, here's a trend. Just capitalize on it. Those of you who don't know it, of course, the NASDAQ 100, the triple Qs is one of the most successful ETFs out there. It's the fifth largest one right now. But last week, they launched a NASDAQ essentially 101 to 200, I guess you could call it, uh, Andrew, that seeks to incorporate companies that are using tech in innovative ways, uh, but that are also right. growing fast. Your reaction to this this sort of yeah, new spate not, of not uh, efforts to capitalize on the tech craze? Not surprised to see Invesco. Um, you know, they're one of the biggest issuers, and they've you know, always been very innovative. Like you said, the NASDAQ Triple Q is a beast, you know, but when you really think about that name, and that is the way to represent tech in a large cap universe, it's 40% FANG. Um, so this, is a, this serves to kind of, you know, take some diversity away from those names. Um, they're not even the first person really to come up with it. A month and a half ago, Victory came up with the QQQN, which is the next 50, or they call it, which is Tech Disruptors, Peloton, CrowdStrike. That's up over 12% in a month and a half. 
Um, but Investo is going to put that that marketing engine behind that. I expect them to get some traction with this ETF. And look, we're in a pandemic-driven or pandemic, uh, let's say, solutions-driven economy where the companies that are making people's lives easier are the companies that people are investing, uh, the next generation are investing in. And I really think you're going to see some names have success, again, especially with the market cap of the QQQ, which will always get assets. And certainly there's a place for dollars in, in the fang. But they're coming under some fire, right? So I think this serves uh, a different investor base and the next leg of growth. Yeah. And, and Tom, what's interesting to me is that this NASDAQ junior uh, 100 ETF or 101 to 200, I like to call it, has got your typical tech names. It's got Seagate and, you know, Zscaler in there, which is an Internet security firm. But it's also got non-tech firms in there. I mean, Garmin, Lyft, uh, Zynga, which is a social game developer. I, I mean, yes, obviously they use tech, but they use tech in innovative ways. I'm not sure they're necessarily technology companies. So there's sort of, even the Nasdaq 100 isn't exclusively tech, obviously, but they're trying to include companies that are using tech in, in, in innovative ways, I think. Yeah, there are a lot of innovative healthcare Tom? companies too, but back to Andy's point, the fact that the queues are stuffed with FANG stocks, and that's done real well for investors over time. However, the key is diversification. And going forward, especially as we're seeing rumblings of antitrust discussions, are we going to be as confident in those FANG stocks going forward? Or here's an opportunity to maybe invest in the future FANG stocks while you can diversify away and maybe uh, you know, catch lightning in a bottle one more time in the form of this next ETF. Yeah, I want to move on uh, and talk a little bit about the, the SPAC boom, which is something I find endlessly fascinating. Um, I think there are some very good things about it and some things that I don't particularly like about it. But, of course, there's an ETF for that. And, uh, Paul, you've launched the Defiant SPAC ETF. SPAK is the symbol. Uh, it's only been out for a few weeks. But I wonder if you could sort of uh, explain to us what this is, because I, the question I get is, how do you buy SPACs when essentially you don't know what they're going to own for, for two years? How does this break down? And I think that's the important thing to understand about this, this particular ETF. Yeah, it's a good question, Bob. And, and what we did with SPAK was essentially provide investors with uh, an 80-20 allocation, 80% being SPACs that have already, or I'm sorry, companies that were private have already merged with SPACs over the last three years. So that's 80%. So you have a DraftKings and Clarivate that kind of fit that bill. Uh, and then the other 20%, to your point, are those pre-IPO SPACs that have yet to merge. Um, and, and for the investors who aren't familiar, uh, SPACs are publicly traded uh, even before they actually merge. Uh, so we're accessing the most liquid and the biggest in size in assets uh, of those SPACs in our SPAK ETF. Andrew, I wonder if you could enlighten us. Why are the SPAC craze now? We've had SPACs for several years, but all of a sudden they've blown up this year. Is there a particular reason this has now happened? Is there a particular problem with the IPO marketplace that some famous investors don't want to bother anymore going I, through the IPO process? I think Why SPACs I think now? Yeah, great question. I think it's a lack of access to RIAs and then their customers, which tend to be unaccredited investors. Now, that's just a term used, you know, by investment banking companies to allow access. I mean, it's a it's a real term, right? But that doesn't mean that unaccredited investors aren't real dollars or have real ideas or have the ability to have diversification. And 
that is what they want, again, based on what we are seeing, and we're going to talk about right in a little bit with value companies kind of being on the back end. People want new access. They see the success they've had investing in companies like Peloton. So their next question is, what's next? And how can I access that, right? And if, if DraftKings is the next Penn Gaming, well, then, okay, I want to get access to that, right? And, again, the beauty of ETFs, all ETFs since they were conceived, the ones that have been most successful were ones that offered a wrapper and a package of convenience to investors that otherwise could not get the asset class. And that is exactly what Paul has created here. He has given people access to this. And I only think it's going to further the craze. Like you said, people talk about it, but can they get it, right? And, and can they get it without single stock risk? Now they can do it. Yeah. And, and, but, but, Paul, is there really a lack of access to RIAs, registered investment advisors, as Andrew suggests here? I'm trying to figure out why this is happening now. It seems – can you – is it fair to say that this is an easier way to go public than, than the, the frankly difficult and arduous IPO route? Is that a fair observation? So I think it's two points, and I think Andrew did an excellent job, and that was really the genesis of the product. So, so to answer your question, your first question, Bob, yes, uh, certain RAs, certain investors, the IPO traditional process is a very closed ecosystem. So if you're an underwriter, if you're Warren Buffett, you know, if you want to buy Snowflake, you're at a $120 price. But once Snowflake actually hits the real market, the, the secondary market, you know, I'm paying $240 a share or essentially 100% premium on that stock uh, just a day ago was at 120. So, you know, I think there is a little bit of a closed off environment to other RIAs, to retail investors to be able to access those types of investments. Um, the second part of it is for a company right now, and if you think about the traditional IPO process, it's really a roadshow type of deal. They have to go to city to city, investor to investor, and raise capital, and they may seek out $10 billion of actual capital, but they're left with five at the end of that process. And the company's faced with the decision, do we actually go public? Do we hold off for a little bit? So it's a little bit of an arduous process. But you overlay that with a COVID environment where travel restrictions are in place, where it's a little bit more difficult to be transient, uh, that even adds to that a little bit more. So with this process through a SPAC, and especially as bigger players like a Bill Ackman are stepping up to the plate with $4 billion pool of capital, that is a very appealing uh, item for a private company to be able to negotiate with one partner, come up with the terms, and yeah. usually have a quicker access to the public markets. Yeah, I certainly get the idea yeah. that and, COVID and Bob, has just... created travel restrictions that make it a little more difficult. Go ahead, quickly. Uh, Tom, did you say something? Yeah, yeah. So, so a couple of things. What, what Andy was saying as far as uh, uh, financial advisors, they work off of platforms like a Fidelity or Schwab. Um, Pre-IPO or private companies really aren't available to be able to buy them on those platforms. This opportunity gets us closer to that. And Frankly, clients are asking for it these days, and uh, public companies just aren't happening quick enough. So the SPAC kind of speeds up the process, and uh, it's it's really good. You can just kind of see with the flows right now, there's definitely a demand. Yeah. Um, I can definitely see in certain circumstances smaller RIAs, and I think Andrew's right, um, would have trouble accessing it before it goes public and they feel left out. Uh, but the bottom line is it's easier to use to go public. It may be cheaper. It may be less arduous. 
whatever the reason, uh, there's a reason people are using, utilizing that. And I think there may be a bit of an oversupply some, somewhere down the road here. We have 124 SPACs launched this year, still haven't found a target. Okay, it's still early, but 27 from last year still haven't found any kind of target. Um, I want to move on, Paul. Um, you also have the uh, Next Generation Connectivity ETF, FIVG. That's essentially a 5G ETF. That thing's been raking in some money. I wonder if you can update us on what's going on there. I mean, we've got uh, a whole bunch of stuff going on with that. It's tier weighted. It's a little bit tough to explain, but you own a whole different groups of companies here. That's what I find very interesting out there. You own cellular networks, cell phone tower REITs in this, broadband modems, fiber cables. Uh, this is pretty elaborate for, a, for an ETF, actually. Well, we appreciate that, Bob. That was the intent of the product. What we tried to do with FIVG was capture the entire ecosystem that was going into the 5G build-out. So you are correct. Uh, Year-to-date, we're up about $400 million in assets. So the ETF has about $550 million in AUM, or assets under management. Um, and we use a four-bucket approach. What we're trying to do is ensure that we have every stock, or every stock that we possibly could, uh, that is really going into this 5G rollout. And I think that's the ultimate difficult question for investors. How do you play 5G? In our eyes, an ETF like FIVG is the perfect way because we give you everything from companies that are doing the high-end routers uh, or the stuff that's actually going into the data centers. We have the mobile network operators. We have the REITs with the infrastructure play. And then we have everything down to the chip manufacturers like a Qualcomm uh, that actually goes into the cell phones or the devices that people are going to hold in their hand and actually connect to the networks. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Uh, uh, Tom, any thoughts on, on this particular one? What I notice is the assets under management keep going up. Yeah. So obviously they've hit on a, a hot top topic. I guess the question is, you know, do, you, do we see other people coming into this space? Um, you know, I, I mean, Tom or Andrew, following the release of the new, the 5G phone, yeah. I mean, the Apple phone, um, are, are other, are we going to see mobile carriers actually following suit here? Or is this going to be off another two years? Well, I think that, and I'll let Andrew jump in in a second. You know, the the new iPhone is absolutely going to help this out tremendously. I, I think Paul should put them on the payroll because it's just going to do nothing but talk about 5G. Unfortunately, right now we only have 5G in 30 cities around the U.S. It's not being built out quick enough. But if you've got a uh, an Apple 12 and you can get that. 100 times speed on your phone, and you can show that to your friends, you can imagine the people are going to start talking about it. The more people talk about it, the greater demand, the greater innovation. Andrew, what would you add? Yeah, I think we've seen, I think we've shown, and we'd all agree that in the last, you know, let's say 10 years, and then I'll add the last nine months specifically with a point. But in the last 10 years, we've seen that people are willing to pay for the best. Right. Um, you could you could call it anything you want. You could call it like I said, you're with the Peloton again. They're willing to pay up for the best. They've always been willing to pay up for Apple products because they were the best when there was plenty of, of options. The Samsung has the same technologies. Right. But people pay for the best. On top of that, I would layer that in this covid pandemic economy, people have discretionary income that they are not using to go out to dinner. You wait to see how fast that goes to 5G yeah. products. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I want to move on here and talk about something that's uh, it attracted my attention uh, last week. Uh, 
Uh, I'm going to call it the value debacle. A very famous value investor, uh, Ted Aronson, ran a big fund, a $10 billion value fund, basically decided to close the whole thing up. He just said, value's not working. And I spoke with him, you know, very briefly. And he said, I don't know when it is. Uh, so, guys, let's just weigh in on this. Uh, value has underperformed for years. Uh, growth versus value debate has been going on for ages. But for the last decade, it certainly hasn't worked at all. The S&P growth uh, ETF, IVW, is up almost 300 percent in the last 10 years. Value is up 100 percent. That's a pretty big outperformance overall. And we're talking about, you know, just 10 years ago. Uh, and you can see how, how, how notable that outperformance has been. Um, guys, weigh in on this. Uh, is, you know, the, the, the big cycle guys say, you know, this could take decades. Value outperformed in 2000 to 2010, did all right in the 1980s. It didn't do, didn't do very well in most of the 1990s. Uh, I guess the question is, does it value versus growth matter that much anymore? If you're just going to own the S&P 500, it doesn't really. But is there any mean reversion that might actually happen here? Would, would we see 2020 to 2030 see a value renaissance? Right. I, I don't think yeah. there's Andrew a... Wayne. a yeah, I don't think there's a ma uh, well. I'll give you a macro kind of idea uh, away from, and then we can obviously talk about what's going on currently. But look, the economy is going to kind of like, hey, investors, you can do this yourself. Hey, you know, there's there's robo advisors that give you models, right? So, asset managers themselves, and this is a point people don't often think about, are like Mr. Aronson, right? They have to stay in business. They have their own goals. They're trying to grow. They're just can't survive year after year not performing and not even getting to data, right? So I think a lot of them, unlike Ted, who did, maybe didn't see it coming, maybe he did, and that's why he closed it, are going, you know what, I just can't do this value thing. I won't be able to keep raising assets. Um, so there's been kind of like a race to performance, and you just can't leave growth out. So I think that's one big part of it. And then obviously the second big part, what we've been speaking about the entire segment, is younger investors, uh, new money, uh, new new goals. I mean, how many younger investors? And I mean, I don't mean kids. I mean people in their late twenties and early thirties are interested in investing in Chevron, right? And energy names. They're just not interested in it. And I think they're willing to leave that out. And they're not thinking about balanced performance. They're thinking about what drives their lives and what they believe in, ESG and things like that. And and uh, frankly, growth is overweighted in names like that and value. I mean, uh, and I'm sorry, overweighted in the tech names yeah. and value is overweighted in those older names that don't drive change. Yeah. You know, you, you know, Tom, I'm, I'm sort of tempted to think here's a famous value investor who throws in the towel and you must think, is this ringing a bell? Is this the bottom and a good time to buy value? Remember, was it Julian Robertson in 2000 who threw in the towel on, uh, on, on tech said he didn't really understand what was going on. Of course, that was, <laughs> that was the absolute, uh, top for the for the tech market. Um, I don't mean to yeah. drag in well, Bob, uh, you, Julian you at all, but know. you know, I mean, you know what I'm getting at, Tom. Everything, every, yeah, everything always reverts back to the mean, and and you just have to be able to wait. But as as Andy's saying, during times like this, young investors also this work from home economy where companies have had to be really really innovative. Not just that. The average investor, the average person that's working from home, the average person that's running a business had to embrace technology that much more. So all these go-growth companies have sped up their timelines tremendously, which has made value stocks even that much more unattractive. So at one point in time, we're going to see value pop. 
the big question is who's going to be the first one or which street is going to start putting their toe in the water first. Yeah. Frankly, you don't want to be the first one doing that. If, if you think about it, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the last word there, Andrew. What, what is the stock market? It's a, it's a, we define it as a, a discounting mechanism for trying to figure out a future stream of earnings. So it would make sense that companies that could grow their earnings uh, more aggressively um, would command a higher price. The question is, how much are you willing to pay for that growth? Can you? The whole decade's been a search for growth at a reasonable price, and certainly some of these tech stocks don't seem to be growth at a reasonable price. So what this tells me is that growth has been fairly hard to come by and that people are willing to pay a lot of money, more than growth at a reasonable price for a lot of these companies, to get that kind of growth that's out there. So I think it says more about the scarcity of real growth names than it does about how awful value is. Paul, maybe I give you the last name. you have any quick thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. And, and, and I, I think Tom did a nice job of, of kind of summarizing the next generation of investors. And I think they are much more passionate about, uh, they, they want to invest in things that they're passionate about. So whether it be ESG, whether it be these growth names, uh, but I think if you just think about the market in general, everyone really thought 2019, you know, 10 years before that was really growth oriented. And then you see the tech name this year, 2020, with the pandemic, with this move to more remote working, we've had to embrace technology even 10x what we did in 2019. So everyone's doing Zoom calls, everyone's connected to the internet much more than they did of last year. So I think right now it's a very topical uh, uh, time for a Peloton, for Zoom, for these names, because we're living it every single day. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Uh, but I agree with the setting of Andrew and Tom. Eventually, value will have it today. Uh, you, you just got to stay solvent and wait, wait it out to be able to get there. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good enough for for for, uh, for Ted Aronson. The, the wait was a little too long. Ten years is a long time to wait for anything. I'm gonna have to leave yeah. it there, guys. Uh, appreciate it. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some thoughtful analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll talk more about the SPAC boom. My producer Kirsten Chang joins me as always. Bob, it's no secret that the SPAC craze, special purpose acquisition company, uh, has taken the investing world by storm. This year alone, we've seen more than 140 SPACs go public, raising more than $50 billion in proceeds, shattering previous records. That's a lot of money raised. But a lot of these SPACs have yet to put the money to work and actually buy companies. Now we have Defiance launching the first ever SPAC IPO ETF, ticker SPAK. We heard from the uh, president today. Do you expect that to be a game changer? We always used to joke, Kirsten, you and I, that once you see a trend, there will be an ETF for that eventually. And indeed, we've seen that. And this is the beauty of ETFs. Okay, yeah, sometimes you get attempts to jump on a trend that's a little premature. Remember the attempt with Bitcoin ETFs in the 2017 and 2018? That was a bit premature. But I think the SPAC craze is starting to re reach a critical mass. So it's not surprising to me that we've got an ETF. And I think it's a great idea. The problem is what exactly is happening? Why are we having a SPAC craze? And if you look at it, there's some reason to be a little bit concerned about this. If you look at what's really going on. So what are you doing with the SPAC? Essentially, you're turning around and taking over an existing company. So rather than have an idea, how about this? Let's start with the company that's already up and running. Okay. And I have an idea. Let's, instead of going through all the headache of actually doing an IPO, let's just take over an existing company. 
What's my brilliant idea? I don't know yet. I don't have one. I'm famous. So I aspire to have an idea somewhere down the road. I have advisors that'll tell me what the right idea is, but I'm pretty famous. I'm famous in the oil business, in the telecommunications business, the whatever business, but I'll find something down the road. Essentially, trust me, we'll find something that's worth your while. So you go down the road and you find one worth investing in. And the question is, okay, that's nice. Is it actually worth investing in? Are there other investors or SPACs out there that are competing with that idea to take it over? We don't know. I can tell you this, the more SPACs that are out there, there is not an infinite number of ideas that are worth investing in out there. There's several hundred SPACs looking to buy things right now. That strikes me as an awful lot of SPACs to start buying things. So just remember that. With that said, there's a couple reasons why I think SPACs make sense. Number one, the, the small investors have been angry for years over the fact that if you look at the IPO process, when it actually happens the night before and they actually announce the price of the IPO, the allocation generally goes to really big institutional investors. Your small companies, your, your small registered investment advisor, RIA, doesn't really get in on the company until it starts trading and it may and typically does trade higher. So there's a certain amount of resentment on the part of the small investor. Gee, how come the big guys get in and I don't? SPACs can get around that by essentially offering people to get in, even if you don't know what it is. So I could see why that exists. That makes some sense to me. But the simple fact is, and don't kid yourself about this, it's easier to go public using a SPAC than it is with an IPO. The IPO process is arduous. It's difficult. It's full of pitfalls. It's expensive. And it should be, arguably. Remember, you're selling stuff to the public here. There's been a lot of bad stuff sold to the public over the decades. And there's only so much you can say, oh, buyer beware. That doesn't cover up every sin. So the IPO process is meant to be fairly difficult because people are supposed to know a lot about what's going on. This process, the SPAC process, is somewhat less arduous than an IPO process. So given how difficult it is to go public, a lot of people are saying on the other side, the people who are not buying it, the people who are selling it are saying, hey, this is a lot easier to use. Now, some people are also arguing that there's been COVID travel restrictions that make going on an IPO roadshow difficult this year. That's true, but I can assure you um, it's likely, given the opening for SPACs, that uh, this would have been a big year even without uh, the COVID uh, uh, travel restrictions. So here's the bottom line. I like the idea of SPACs. I like the idea because I'm in favor of companies going public and getting more companies going public. I think it's a tragedy that so many companies have elected to stay private for so long and missed all the early growth stages. Investors, public investors have missed all the early growth stages for a lot of companies because it's just easier to stay private. They've got the money. There's a lot of private money floating around. Interest rates are low, easy to borrow. Why deal with going public when you can stay private? So I'm in favor of any way to put more public companies in the hands of people, including SPACs. I'm just telling the buyers out there to be careful. There's a glut of SPACs out there right now looking for a lot of deals. And to me, that means that some people are going to buy into deals that are not going to work out very well. I think people need to be very aware of that fact. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETFEdge 
CNBC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.